Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to New Creation Fellowship, and especially welcome to those of you who may be visiting us for the first time at the invitation of a friend, neighbor, coworker, and if you happen to be a student on this campus, welcome, welcome, welcome. We're so honored uh, that you could grace us with your presence and really for us to be a blessing uh, to you and to your community here. Uh, without further ado, would you mind bowing your heads just one more time so we can ask God to bless uh, today's message. Father, we pray that you would be with us today and that you would speak to us. For Father, we need your word because we truly believe that it is what it claims about itself, that it is the word that guides us. It's the word that gives us life. It's the word that gives us the principles that we need to live by, the commands that we need to follow so that we could become men and women of great renown, men of wisdom, so that we can navigate through the complex dark world that we live in, a world that so easily tries to entangle us with confusion and thoughts of sin. Oh, Lord, would you help us to see the truth, the magnitude of your word, so that we would be changed to become more like your beloved son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would be with all those who are visiting us today. Father, whether they are fellow believers or people investigating the Christian faith, oh God, would you touch all our hearts and our minds so that we would walk away so convinced that you are the hope of the world. Oh Lord, we pray that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, every Friday afternoon, the Bay family does what has now become a family tradition. After I pick up my kids from school, We get them cleaned up. We help them do their homework. And then my wife and I, Sarah, we load them up in our minivan and we proceed to take them out to a nice family dinner. This is kind of Sarah and I's way of trying to spend some more intentional quality time with our kids. And, of course, you would think that our children, especially the older ones, would be so thankful, so appreciative of the fact that mom and dad wants to treat them to a nice meal. Well, unfortunately, that isn't usually the case. Why? Because within the first five minutes of our journey to the restaurant, the same argument proceeds out of the mouths of my older three kids. I want jajamyeon. No, I want Vietnamese. No, I want pizza. No, Vietnamese. No, jajamyeon. On and on it goes. Needless to say, as a father of many kids, I got problems, right? I got four problems, right, that I can't get over, right? One of them being the fact that I have different kids who love different kinds of foods. And one particular Friday, as Sarah and I were yet again trying to resolve this argument, for some odd reason, my thoughts started going to a passage in Scripture where it's recorded for us, Jesus saying these words in John chapter 6, verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now, to this day, I still have no idea why I thought of that particular verse. If I had to venture a guess, maybe it's an occupational hazard. You know, my tendency is to always read and study the Bible all the time. And maybe because of my kids' diatribe about food just sparked my memory of Jesus speaking about food in this particular instance. But here's the thing. As I thought about this verse and the implications of it, I actually started growing really concerned for my children's spiritual well-being. Why? Well, let me explain. In this passage in John 6, Jesus is making a connection between our hunger for food and our faith in Jesus, as if to say that our desire for food is analogous to our desire for God, to where what applies to one situation applies to the other. And if that is the case, I started to wonder, what if my children one day grow up to loving another God other than the God that I 
love. And furthermore, what if they grow up fighting with each other or worse, fighting with me about which God to worship, just like they fight with each other over which food to eat? It's not that far off of a possibility. After all, they are growing up in one of the most diverse cities in the world where there's a high panorama of various views of God, various faiths that they are constantly being exposed to. And so as a father, I find myself being worried about the stability of their confidence in the Christian God. And I'm willing to bet that that same concern for stability is also a concern for you. Maybe not just for your children if you happen to have one or some, but maybe for your own stability in your confidence in the Christian God. You know, as a pastor, I've been asked all throughout my Christian life by other Christians, by non-Christians, by friends, by family members, how can you be so confident? How can you be so confident that Jesus Christ is truly the one and only true God, thereby making Christianity the one and only true faith? How can you be so confident that Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life, and not simply a God that you choose to prefer because based on your spiritual palate, you find him particularly tasty? Or if I could put it another way, how do I know that my love for Jesus isn't simply because he fits my personal style, that he meets my personal preferences that come out of my own personal experiences and upbringing from my own personal life? Have you ever asked that question? I'm sure you have, and I'm sure it's a question you still linger with because it's a question that you probably are still struggling to adequately answer. And if that is you this morning, then I have good news because Jesus is going to address that very issue as we continue our study through the parables of Jesus. He is going to show us how we can address this very interesting struggle that we all have. And he does it by telling two short parables that are interlocked with one another so that we can come away from it being more confident that he truly is the God, the way, the truth, and the life. And it all centers on this concept of the power and the uniqueness of his love. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, why Jesus' love causes us to doubt it. Number two, what Jesus says about his love so we no longer doubt it. And finally, how Jesus convinces us to trust in his love, okay? Why Jesus' love causes us to doubt it. <clears throat> Excuse me. What Jesus says about his love so we no longer doubt it. And how Jesus convinces us to trust in his love, okay? Let's jump right in. First, why Jesus' love causes us to doubt it. Now, as I just said a moment ago, this passage of scripture is actually made up of two short parables that are interlocked with one another. And what I mean by that is Jesus intentionally tells these two parables to be inseparably connected together because they function as one main parable. And the reason why I know this is because that's what all the Bible experts say. For example, uh, Professor Jeffrey Gibbs, who teaches at Concordia Seminary, he writes this, quote, It is obvious that these parables are linked inseparably by a common phrase. Despite their many differences in structure and theme, they communicate a parallel meaning. For the meaning of these parables is inextricably intertwined with the meaning of the phrase, He goes and sells all that he has and buys. In other words, we know that Jesus designed these two parables to be linked together, to never be separated because of the fact that they function as one because there is the same main idea in both. And what is this main idea? You have two characters who sell all that they have so that they can acquire something else. In the first parable, you have a guy 
selling all that he has so he can acquire a field with a hidden treasure in it. In the second parable, you have a merchant selling all that he has so can he acquire a pearl of great price. Now, as our attention is drawn to this main idea of selling all that you have so that you can acquire something else, we ask ourselves, what is the reason? What is the point that Jesus is trying to make by bringing our attention to this idea? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to back up a little bit and be reminded about the nature of parables. You might have been reminded by what I've said in previous sermons in this series is that when Jesus told parables, they were designed to give an account of what seems like real life events to symbolize mankind's relationship to God. And this is no different. Jesus is telling these two parables to help us understand the nature of man's relationship to God, but he does it in the context of this notion of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And what is the kingdom of heaven? Do you know what it is? You know, when most people think about the kingdom of heaven, most Christians, they imagine a place Probably a very, very big place filled with beautiful palaces and celestial halls and and beautiful scenery, kind of like what you would see in the movie Lord of the Rings, right? But if that's how you understand this notion of the kingdom of heaven, it's going to make this parable make no sense whatsoever. It's going to be completely nonsense because think about it. In the first parable, it says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Verse 44, right? How in the world can you hide a kingdom, let alone God's kingdom, in a field? Does that make sense to you? Or how about the second parable where Jesus equates the kingdom of heaven to a pearl? Have you ever seen a pearl, right? I know you ladies wish you saw more of them, right? But you know, a pearl by itself, it's so tiny. It's so insignificant. It's tinier than most marbles that kids play with. They're so seemingly insignificant. Why in the world is Jesus trying to help us understand this concept of the kingdom of heaven, but he attaches it to things that are either hidden or so insignificant? It just makes no sense. Well, consider these words from Pope Benedict, the current Roman Catholic Pope. And this is from his book, Jesus of Nazareth, because he explains exactly right on what he is doing, what Jesus is doing. He writes this quote, Jesus himself is the kingdom. The kingdom is not a thing. It is not a geographical dominion like worldly kingdoms. It is a person. It is he. By the way in which he speaks of the kingdom of God, Jesus leads men to realize the overwhelming fact that in him, God himself is present among them, that he is God's presence. What's he saying? He's saying that when Jesus refers to the kingdom of God, or in this case, the kingdom of heaven, he's referring to himself. He is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you understand that, then everything seems to make sense. Then you come to understand why Jesus equates himself to an insignificant pearl and to treasures that are hidden, right? Because church history has shown, and maybe your own life can testify, that when most people encounter Jesus for the first time on initial encounters, he seems so insignificant, nothing special, nothing profound in any way. But then what? Something happens. You hear a message. You read a book. You have a conversation with a Christian. You have a spiritual experience, and then voila, right? What seemed hidden is now revealed A person who seems so insignificant becomes magnificent, and then Jesus becomes your greatest love because you first discover how greater he loves you, how much greater his love is for you. See, the whole point Jesus is trying to get at as he teaches these two parables is to convey this idea of how awesome, how magnificent his love is. That is what the kingdom of heaven is. It's the magnitude of And the gravity of the awesomeness of Jesus' love. And the way Jesus conveys how awesome and magnificent his love is, 
is by describing the identical reaction of these two characters. Well, again, what do they do? They sell all that they have so that they can acquire this treasure, right? Now, I know that when you first hear that, it doesn't sound very good. It doesn't make Jesus appear like a good person, right? Because it kind of carries this message that if you want to experience the love of Jesus, you have to basically give everything that you have, presumably to him, making yourself poor so that you can get the blessings. It kind of makes Jesus sound like a televangelist a little bit, right? Just give all of your wealth, all of your things so that you can get the prosperity, right? But before you think that way, you have to remember something. Look at the way the story is written or the way it's spoken and now recorded for us. These men only sell everything after what? After they first experience, after they first encounter the treasure, after they first have the treasure exposed to them as it comes to them, right? You see, their reaction of selling everything is a response to the treasure. It is not the cause of the discovery of the treasure, right? Second thing you have to remember is that this is a parable. Again, everything is symbolic, including the behavior of these men behaving the way that they are, right? And the question is, what exactly is this behavior supposed to symbolize? What does selling all that you have so that you can acquire this thing, what is that behavior supposed to symbolize? Well, again, R.H. Charles, another New Testament scholar, clarifies when he writes the selling and the buying in this connection expresses a man's willingness to give up to sacrifice everything and everyone that prevents his making the heavenly treasure his own in other words these two characters by being willing right to give up everything and to sell everything is simply their way of expressing that Jesus's love is worth more than anything or anyone that they currently possess you see the behavior of these characters is not to earn the love of Jesus, but it's rather to express how much they value the love of Jesus. It's something that they value so much that nothing and no one in their life can compete against it. These characters are willing to give up everything. They're willing to give up status. They're willing to give up money. They're willing to give up comfort. They're willing to give up relationships. They're even willing to give up their own life for the sake of Jesus's love. Now, for those of you here investigating Christianity, I know that that kind of behavior sounds very, very suspicious, very dubious, maybe even scary, because after all, whenever we experience or witness someone so radically devoted to somebody, whether it's a lover, a child, or a cult leader, right? It's usually because that person who's so devoted has some sort of issue, some personal struggles or personal uh, needs that make them gravitate towards the person. In other words, It's not because the person they're devoted to is really all that great. It's more because they have these internal struggles, these internal issues and insecurities that make them gravitate towards the person. So we get suspicious. Are these two characters, do they find Jesus' love so amazing because Jesus' love is really that amazing? Or could it be that like so many people we've seen in society, they have personal needs, personal struggles, personal insecurities, personal instabilities that make them more personally attracted or maybe susceptible to the love of Jesus. I can totally see how a person can read this passage and think that's the case, that the reason why they think Jesus is so great is more about them than it is about Jesus. But there's a reason why that conclusion is completely off base. And to explain why, let me go to my next point, what Jesus says about his love so we no longer doubt it. Now, When you first read these two parables, again, the most immediate thing that pops out is how similar these two characters are, specifically in their behavior. What do they do? They sell all that they have, 
right? And they acquire all the things that they got from selling all that they have. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just want us to notice how identical these two characters are because he also wants us to notice how different they are. And you're thinking, how are they different? (laughs) Because when you read it, at least at the surface reading of it, it doesn't seem like they're that different at all. We'll consider these very insightful words from New Testament scholar Craig Keener. He writes this, quote, The central character in the first parable was a peasant working in a wealthy landowner's field who, when plowing, turned up a strong box or jar containing coins. After telling of a peasant's labor's discovery, Jesus tells of a more prosperous merchant seeking pearls. In contrast to the peasant worker, the protagonist of this story is a merchant, a man with capital, hence a person of greater means. In the ancient Near Eastern world, divers fished for pearls in the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, and the Indian Ocean. Now, from this very helpful background information that Dr. Keener gives us, we see clearly how different these two characters are. First, you have the peasant in the field. The guy has no money. He's uneducated. He's not been exposed to anything outside of his own culture. And most likely, he doesn't come from a prominent family. But then you have the merchant who's very well off, he's very well educated, and he's been around the world. He's rubbed shoulders from people of different cultures and philosophies and perspective because his occupation requires him to be exposed to what's out there. I mean, in the ancient world, you could not find more two polar opposite people than these two characters. And yet, notice, in spite of how different they are, they both have the same response to Jesus's love. They're radically committed to it, to where in spite of what differences that they may have, right, they're united in their agreement. Jesus's love is worth everything. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because when you have people who are this uncommon, right, usually they don't share any of the same preferences or values or tastes right? They don't even share the same struggles or needs, right? I mean, case in point, consider our taste in music. You know, studies are telling us now that people love different genres of music from other people because they have different cultural values from those people. Consider this article entitled, Why Culture, Not Race, Determines Taste in Music. This is from the Conversation website. It says this, quote, the existence of different genres has to be regarded as a manifestation of our cultural diversity. When one likes a piece of music, when it becomes meaningful to a particular person, some of the meaning of that song will inhere in the style or genre in which it is composed or performed. If I am into jazz and loathe heavy metal, then that preference will make me reject a particular song in the genre of heavy metal, regardless of whether it's a good song or not. Consequently, different kinds of music seem to represent different kinds of value. Rock music may represent the values of youth rebellion against what is perceived as a narrow-minded and materialistic value system of an older generation, while traditional folk music may be representative of an uncorrupted rural ideal. Such value systems are not fixed but can be rooted in the mind of the perceiver. For some, classical music expresses the most profound sentiments of which humans are capable. For others, it is elitist, imperialist, boring, or simply uncool. Comprehensibility and value, then, are the reasons why there are cultural, not racial, divides between adherents of different kinds of music. Where do these divides come from? They are the result of any number of contributing factors, including... Upbringing in the parent culture, education, peer group interaction, expression of a person's individual identity, even a marker of territory. What's the author saying? He's saying that when people come from culturally different backgrounds, they're going to love different music from those who come from completely different cultural backgrounds. And we see this all the time, whether you're talking about music, fashion, even food, and especially politics, right? And yet, by using these two characters in these parables, 
who would have been so different, who would have shared no common interest, no common values, Jesus is identical for both. He fits both of their styles, right? See, Jesus is making the audacious claim with these two characters that it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, how you think, how wealthy you are, you know, what your background is, what your unique struggles are, or what your issues may be, everyone, everyone would find Jesus lovely. That is the magnitude, that is the awesomeness of his love. Jesus' love fits everyone's style. That's what he's saying. Paul goes on to repeat that same idea when he writes in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all, what? One in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? Paul is saying, look, there are so many things that divide so many different people to where they can never be one. But there is one thing, there really is one thing only that can bring people together in such a way that no other thing can. That's Jesus. Specifically, that's his love. The love of Jesus. And of course, if you think about it from a historical standpoint, that is so true. If you study all the key figures of history, there is no one who has been able to bring together all the various tribes, nations, and tongues, all different cultures than the person of Jesus. No other person has been able to match the magnitude of the gathering and the uniting of various different people who have nothing in common and bring them together to be one and be equally devoted to Christ as they are. Right? Now, this is not to say that there haven't been people who have brought people together. Surely there have been, whether you're talking about politicians, social uh, activists, military conquerors, scientists, you know, cultural you know, inventors and, and innovators, right? They've all done these things at different times. Yes, Steve Jobs has brought people together who probably would normally be at each other's throat. Right? Abraham Lincoln did bring people together that most people would have killed each other. Martin Luther King Jr., yes, brought people together, unifying them. But none of them have been able to unite people with the same level of devotion for the longevity as Jesus. In fact, consider the words of one such individual in his estimation of Jesus. This is the Napoleon Bonaparte. This is the great French emperor who once said this. I will tell you, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded great empires, but our empires were founded on force. Jesus alone founded his empire on love, and to this day, millions would die for him. I think I understand something of human nature, and I tell you, all these were men, and I am a man. Jesus Christ was more than a man. I have inspired multitudes with a devotion so enthusiastic that they would have died for me, but to this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence of my looks, my words, my voice. Who cares for me now? removed as I am from the active scenes of life and from the presence of man. Who would now die for me? Christ alone across the chasm of 18 centuries makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks more than a father can demand of his child or a bride of her spouse or a man of his brother. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally and forthwith his demand is granted. Wonderful. In defiance of time and space, the soul of man with all his powers and faculties become an annexation to the empire of Christ. This phenomenon is unaccountable. It is altogether beyond the scope of man's creative powers what's the point the point is this jesus is stating that his love is so versatile that it can capture the heart of any person to where he becomes their greatest love again 
Jesus is stating that his love is so incredibly versatile that it can capture the heart of any person to where he becomes their greatest love. And of course, that's the question. How does Jesus pull that off? How is it that his love is so incredibly versatile, so adaptable to where no matter who you are, where you come from, no matter how different you think you are from everyone else, that his love perfectly fits the unique quirky preferences that we all have that are so different from each other. How is his love able to be that comprehensive, that applicable? The answer leads me to my final point, how Jesus convinces us convinces us to trust in his love. For those of you who are familiar with the teachings of Jesus, you might find this parable somewhat ironic. And the reason why I say ironic is because in these two stories, Jesus seems to be commending two characters who are driven by the love of money, right? Because what do they, they sell all that they have, what? So they can get something of greater value. It just seems that these two characters are so driven to get more from themselves from a monetary standpoint. And that's so unlike Jesus, because whenever you read through the gospels, one of the things that Jesus clearly makes clear is that he cannot tolerate, he cannot stand it when people are driven by the love of money. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, he says this in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So here's the big question. Why in the world would Jesus use the love of money as a representation of the love that he has. Why does Jesus use the love of money to represent the love of Jesus? Does that make sense? Well, for two reasons. Reason number one, Jesus understands that it's hard to believe that his love is as versatile as it claims that he is, that he says that it is. He understands that it's very hard to believe that his love is that versatile, that adaptable. And so what does he do? He points to something else that's also very versatile in terms of love, which is what? The love of money, right? Isn't that interesting? How people who are so different from each other have nothing in common, would really not even want to be around each other, but they all seem to be united in their common love for money. It just seems that the love of money is so versatile. No matter who you are, where you come from, everyone is in agreement. Love of money is, is ruling our hearts, right? But here's what's so scary. When you consider how the love of money plays out in our lives. Back in 1991, there was a book entitled The Day America Told the Truth. And it was such an eye-opening book that even Oprah herself devoted an entire episode on this book with the authors. Okay, It was that big of a book. And at one point in the book, the authors asked this question to the people that they surveyed, the thousands of people they surveyed. And that question was this. What would you be willing to do for $10 million? What would you be willing to do for $10 million? And this is what they found. 25% would abandon their families, including their spouses, their children, and parents. 23% would be a prostitute for a week. And 7% would murder a complete stranger. Right? Now, this was back in 91, right? And I think we can say that our culture has changed a lot, and I think it's probably changed for the worse. And when you couple that with the fact that 10 million back in 91 will be worth 18 million today, I cannot help but to think that these percentages would be much higher, right? Especially when you know that people do these things for no money whatsoever, right? What's the point? The point is this. The versatility of the love of money 
is a reflection of the versatility of the sinful heart. Let me say that one more time. The versatility of the love of money, the fact that the love of money is so profound, so everywhere, shows that everywhere, everyone is a sinner. Everyone is a sinner, okay? And that actually leads us to the second reason why Jesus uses the love of money. You see, Jesus is trying to kind of piggyback off of our versatile love for money to actually show how superior his love is for us. In some ways, he's kind of doing this mental jujitsu move where he's kind of using our common love for money to show, compared to his love, it's so much weaker. How is it so much weaker? How is his love so superior to our versatile love for money? Tim Keller, in his book, Reason for God, tells us in a powerful example, he says, quote, The Greco-Roman world religious views were open and seemingly tolerant. Everyone had his or her own God. The practices of the culture were quite brutal, however. The Greco-Roman world was highly stratified economically with a huge distance between the rich, rich and the poor. By contrast, Christians insisted that there was only one true God, their dying Savior, Jesus Christ. Their lives and practices were, however, remarkably welcoming to those that, culture, that the culture marginalized. The early Christians mixed people from different races and classes in ways that seemed scandalous to those around them. The Greco-Roman world tended to, to despise the poor, but Christians gave generously not only to their own poor, but to those of other faiths. In broader society, women had very low status, being subjected to high levels of female infanticide, forced marriages, and lack of economic equality. Christianity afforded women much greater security and equality than had previously existed in the ancient world. During the terrible urban plagues of the first two centuries, Christians cared for the sick and dying in the city, often at the cost of their own lives. This is so interesting. Unlike the versatile love of money, which causes people to do cruel things, sometimes to their own loved ones, the love of Jesus compels people to be kind, sometimes to complete strangers, sometimes to their own enemies. How do you account for such a vast difference? The answer is the gospel. The gospel. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is the message that says, no matter how different you think you are, no matter how unique, how quirky or how unlike you are from everyone else, the gospel says you are just like everyone else that walks on the earth in one specific area of life. You are just as wicked, just as broken, just as perverted, just as sinister as every sinner that walks on this earth. Okay? That's what it says. And yet, God, your creator, in whose image you are made, loved you so much that he becomes a man, Jesus Christ, so that he could pay the full penalty of all your sins, past, present, future. And because that is true, do you realize what it means? It means that when you contemplate what the gospel really says about Jesus' love, it tells us something very profound. You know what it tells us? It tells us that Jesus' love is non-preferential preferential. preferential. (laughs) Does that make sense? Is that even grammatically correct? Jesus' love is a non-preferential preference. Non-preferential preference. What do I mean by that? It means Jesus, when he looks at you, you don't fit his style. You're not his type, right? You're not his style. Isn't that the Korean phrase? You're not my style in Korean. I'm not even going to attempt it because my Korean's terrible. You're not my style, right? You don't fit his preferences Because you are an unrighteous, wicked sinner. He is a holy, merciful God, and yet he loves you as if you are the most righteous, as if you are the most compatible person, as if you are the one. In fact, doesn't he call the people who make up the church his bride? 
You are so incompatible. You are so unpreferential to Christ. And yet, in some mysterious way from the gospel, he loves you like as if you were meant to be his and he was meant to be yours. That is why his love is vastly superior. That's why his love is not preferential preference. He preferences you even though, in some ways, at a very basic level, you shouldn't be. That is what the gospel teaches us. And when you realize that, then you're going to understand that no other versatile loves that are out there, the love of money, the love of power, the love of sex, the three major ones, none of those things will be able to equate the vast superiority of Christ's love. Which means the love of Jesus is not contingent upon the unique preferences of people or their unique spiritual taste buds. He is delicious to all because he is our God and you are his image mirror. See, when you understand that, then you gain the confidence of knowing that your affection for Jesus is not simply because it's just your preference, not just because it's just your views, your opinions, and your upbringing. No, it's something much bigger, much, much bigger than history, much bigger than culture, much bigger than anything. It is spiritual. It is creational. Do you guys see that? See, when you understand that, then that changes how you interface with the people around you. Because when you know that this Jesus loved you, even though you didn't fit his style, even though you didn't scratch where he itched, then you start imitating his love to other people. You start loving other people the way he loves you to where you find yourself being willing to be in fellowship, willing to be in community with people who normally drive you crazy, who you normally don't want to be around, who normally want to get You want to get out of your face, but instead of pushing away, instead of criticizing, you embrace, you welcome, and you extend grace. That's what the church is, and that's the kind of blessing that we offer to the world. No other organization, no other institution can provide. What is that? That's blessings. That's blessings. And CF, let me ask you, are you confident that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe he really is the one true God? And that the faith that you embrace is really the one true faith. At this time, I want to try and end my message by giving you some practical next steps of what you can do so that you can better apply this message. And the first one is obviously the one we always say, if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you've been struggling with this very issue of wondering, is Jesus really the one? Is he really that person who he claims to be? And you find yourself persuaded, then I invite you to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. Come to know him. Embrace him and be confident of who he claims to be. But then secondly, fortify your conviction, right? I want to recommend maybe read a book on addressing this very issue so that you can further your convictions that Jesus is more than just my personal preference. He really is God. Three books that I would recommend. Jesus Among Other Gods by Ravi Zacharias, Putting Jesus in His Place by Robert Bowman, The Incomparable Christ by John Stott. Such wonderful books that will help you and solidify the conviction that Christ is truly the one. And then finally, I would like for you to pray and discuss within your Oikos groups how as a group you can reach out to the various people in your social networks, especially maybe those who God has put in your life that you wish he didn't. For some reason, you know there are some people in your circle that you're like, why did God put this person in my life? I try to ditch him, and he keeps coming around. He's like a boomerang, or she's like a boomerang. I throw them out, and they keep coming on back. Maybe this is your way of practicing 
the love Jesus had for you in the gospel. And maybe you can ask your Oikos group members to help pray for you and for that person, and maybe even come up with creative ways of how you can reach these people in your life.